This is Constantinople, great conversations in a great city. Are you trying to cultivate wisdom, virtue, and joy in your life and in the lives of those around you? You're in good company. Welcome to Constantinople. Megan Muller. This time I'm joined by Dr. John Mark Reynolds. Hello, I'm here. And Kate Gilbert. Hello. This is kind of part of a normal crew for us. This is good. We haven't done this in a while. Yeah, if you can count normal as something we did three years ago. Oh, that's right. <laughs> and so if it's you very are, normal. If, if you, you are a <laughs> weekly listener to this podcast, it's been a hard three years for you, really. If you were cryogenically frozen, however, <laughs> in about 2019, you wouldn't know any different. Which in one way would be a good thing. There are many things that we many have a Americans lot to catch you yes, up on. You would never believe all the things that occurred. First of all, you can start by Googling something, C-O-V-I-D. Catch up with that and yes. then get back to us. Yes, exactly. Um, we are not here to talk about that today, though. Thanks we are be here to God. To, yes, exactly. Um, so today we are going to be talking about um, the first St. Constantine Vision Conference, which took place uh, in the, at the end of of July this past year, 2022. Um, I say with no bias at all as the person who was helping run it, I think it was fantastic. It and was so a great we just wanted to take a little bit of time mm-hmm. to talk about um, what people heard there, um, who was there, what they helped us think about. Um, the theme of the conference this year was uh, this first year was establish and endure. Uh, we can talk a little bit about what the theme was. And uh, we have another podcast coming out that's about some of the readings that were performed at the mm-hmm. conference, the Ponce. Um, so there, we'll have a podcast coming out about that as well. Um, but yeah, this is just a time for us to kind of reflect on how the conference was and get people excited about next year. Yeah, we can also, if you're thinking, wow, I don't want to listen to this because I don't want to hear self-congratulatory discussions of how wonderful a conference was, we're also, <laughs> uh, I think we this is a chance for us to digest the kind of big things we learned and why they mattered. And since we're not, we're not just going to put the conference online, correct? Right. Uh, it's yeah. there mm-hmm. for attendees, but this is the kind of thing you really should come to. Mm-hmm. And so what we're mm-hmm. going to do is the sort of thing that you can do listening. So what you can do at a conference is interact with the speaker. So for example, I gave an opening talk, but my talk, I have notes in front of me, will be tailored to the people I'm looking at. Every once in a while, I'll give a talk that's totally different than the notes in front of me because I'm staring at the people in front Mm -hmm. of me and think, these people don't care about what I'm about to say at all. And so I think a conference is a living experience, and I, I really commend you uh, for not putting it up there. I know that was your call, uh, one of your calls. Uh, but what we're going to do is kind of the information part of it or our own spiritual reflections, mm-hmm. what things happen to us. And I'll start with an example, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Uh, and that was uh, our friend Frederica Matthews Green, who mm-hmm. has been a friend of the kind of programs we've been involved in for the last 20, 25 years. And she uh, gave a talk on Charles Dickens and reflected on his life, his biography, and how his biography might be reflected in his novels. Now, I can tell you, uh, as a person who writes about five million times less well than Charles Dickens, (laughs) that a person being reflected in their writing is certainly true of me. It's certainly true of anybody that I know who writes. So it's not surprising that Mm -hmm. Dickens' biography, his life, would show up in what he had to say. The sad story, however, and I knew this before Frederica talked uh, about the life of Charles Dickens, is uh, how tragically terrible Charles Dickens became (laughs) at the end of his life. So it's one thing to make youthful mistakes. Mm -hmm. I think most of us hope there's a a kind of uh, forgiveness for youthful mistakes. Youth make youthful mistakes. But Charles Dickens seemed to be intent on proving the adage there's no fool like an old fool. Mm. And it's much harder to forgive those kinds of mistakes because Charles Dickens ought to have known better. He wrote novels uh, against the kind of behavior uh, he was responsible for. Does anyone want to summarize uh, what went wrong with Charles Dickens? Uh, uh, he grew tired of his wife. Yeah. And got infatuated with a young actress. Yeah, and and apparently uh, they may never have had an actual relationship, 
but he got strung along mm. uh, like many an old fool, behaved badly. Uh, I'm not justifying him in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but he also, I think, was an excellent father of young children. But the word that his friends used to describe him is one, we were talking about words that are hard to pronounce. I always <laughs> get this one wrong, so I apologize. Inimitable. Mm -hmm. You know, nothing was like Charles Dickens. And I'm sure that if you had someone like Charles Dickens as a friend, mm -hmm. they did seem inimitable. <laughs> but uh, the problem is, of course, as you grow older, you become more imitable. Uh, <laughs> to make up a word, uh, I can say as the oldest person here by far. Uh, and you might just get really insecure about that and want to remain awesome and the mm. only game in town. And his kids weren't cute anymore, right? You can't take... Uh, our modern equivalent would be cute little kid pictures with you with your cute little kids. Your kids become kind of rivals. They're stronger than you are, faster mm -hmm. than you are. They're not tiny Tims. Yes, that's yeah. exactly right. And Charles Dickens is, is pretty famous, especially early on, for not being great at writing women characters. The joke is that none of the women in his books have legs. Mm -hmm. uh, given the number of children he had, he clearly at one point loved his wife. I uh, knew that she had legs, I'll put it that way. Uh, but it seems like he couldn't categorize women as human. He instead had sort of angel, it, it's the old stereotype that's often overdone, I think, in some feminist literature the, of angel versus devil, you know, mm -hmm. someone who's no good. And Charles Dickens seems to really have had that mm -hmm. struggle. Uh, at least in his novels. And Frederica saw his failures, his moral failures, as kind of wrecking certain parts of his novels. And while one might argue about the details, and of course anyone who's read all of Dickens uh, for fun, uh, which growing up was a thing I did, strangely, uh, wants to argue immediately, defend novels from criticism. But he obviously got really obsessed with justifying changing uh, England's divorce laws. And if you know anything about his biography, you mm -hmm. think, here comes the requisite paragraph <laughs> saying how cruel England's divorce laws are so that you can be horrible to the mother of your children and to your children. Because it goes, I mean, he basically sent his wife into exile as mm -hmm. the main moneymaker uh, in the family and had nothing to do with her. Yeah. So it's really just unconscionable. Uh, Hope can't listen to Dickens right now ever since the conference. Uh, we go to sleep often listening to uh, long novels. And Dickens is an easy, it's easy on the ear. You mm -hmm. know the plot. You can go to sleep, wake up, go back to sleep because you know where you are in the book. She can't do Dickens right now. And I don't blame her. Yeah. And so it really left us to reflect on the toxic nature of sin and why we want to avoid it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Frederica also talked about the influence, um, the, the, the way by which uh, exposure to uh, like friendship, education through friendship can be a polluting factor. So, yes. you know, we look oh, at Dickens' right. novels as moral formation, but he got involved with another, not not romantically, just in friendship. He got involved with another novelist, Wilkie Collins, who mm -hmm. I actually, it was very funny. I had just been binge listening to Wilkie, Wilkie Collins, Collins audiobooks. Yes, I had just re-listened to um, The Moonstone, and yeah. then I had just listened to The Woman in White for the first time, but I didn't know much about his, auto, about his biography. So I didn't know that he was just sort of like a moral degenerate. Yes. And so when, when, when uh, Dickens fell in with Wilkie Collins, he began to change his behavior toward you know, his marriage. Mm -hmm. Wilkin Collins was very against marriage. The Woman in White is actually a book all about women being institutionalized and manipulated and uh, killed because of how bad matrimony is. Like husbands destroy women, which is why we should protect them and just uh, have relationships and never get married mm -hmm. yes. because marriage is super evil, is um, which I had not when, when Frederica yeah. said that during her talk, it like totally reframed the sort of like moral <laughs> tale of the woman in white for me, because I had just read it as like a, Ooh, it's kind of like a chilly, you yeah. know, scary, you know, book. But then I was like, Oh dear. Um, I, I, I think totally eventually he sort of, um, took Dickens to Paris to do the bad behavior that English gentlemen, so-called, uh, would engage in in Paris. That that whatever Dickens' moral life had been previously, and he was a kind of cultural Christian, but he really cared about Jesus. I mean, he put together a bio of Jesus for his children that was privately published. It was just for them. Uh, all of his books are permeated with a kind of Christian presence that I don't think, especially the early ones, are just nods 
uh, to his audience. A Christmas Carol, for example, is a deeply Christian work uh, looked mm -hmm. out one way. I don't think it's a secularizing work at all. But I do agree with Frederica. You can see a real decline in religion uh, as central to Dickens in his novels. Mm -hmm. uh, I say that as a layperson. I, I'm wondering, Kate, uh, you have to uh, think about spiritual formation a lot, mm -hmm. both with our students ranging from kids to college students, and have been doing that for a while. Um, what do we do with writers that we have to say, and this is almost all writers, Tolstoy, what a terrible husband, <laughs> uh, who had great moral insight, but were pretty crummy people? If that's not just the problem of people, I don't... <laughs> like, no, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, 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 it's very true that people, even very wise people, struggle to put their wisdom into action. And I think students, even just knowing that, is very helpful to them. Um, if you can sort of rid yourself of the expectation that those who think well will always act well. Yes. It's, um, it's a good thing. And I don't think it's falling into so-called cancel culture to say, ah, Tolstoy, we really sometimes get tired of your moral preening when we know you're home mm -hmm. hitting your wife. Uh, assuming that those stories that I've read are true. Uh, th that's really hard. I, I don't like the phrase, this author is problematic, because <laughs> it strikes me that all humans are problematic. Mm -hmm. But I also don't want to do moral equivalency. Dickens' treatment of his wife uh, and the fact that he could legally do this was unbelievably bad and not the equivalent of a slip up or calling someone a bad name. Uh, and so... Well, I wouldn't want to say that reading Dickens is now problematic. Mm -hmm. It problematizes Dickens' arguments, particularly in his later novels, and I think that's okay. It's okay without just going into bulverism, that is making the biography count uh, kind of for the moral status of the work, to say, yep, this paragraph against English divorce laws, mm, that's a little self-serving, I think, Charles. There's, yeah, Frederica sort of presented it in that manner, too. Yeah. Right? She really just gave her audience the facts of his biography and then reflected on how that might have been affecting his later work, but didn't draw for us a strong conclusion as to what to do, right? Yeah, I don't um, want Wilkie Collins novels. Books, you know? <laughs> I don't want Wilkie Collins novels to make me uh, dislike women or look at women or wives, my wife, as problematic or restraining. And so sometimes saying an author has a problematic view helps you avoid it. Yeah. Uh, knowing that Rudyard Kipling was not as pro-colonial as he appears sometimes, but also the white man's burden is an unreadable uh, poem, I think, morally nowadays, or at least it should be. We should uh, wretch morally. We should have at that time, and some people did. Uh, but even knowing that, the Jungle Books are just really excellent pieces of literature taught in some parts of India uh, as part of a particular era of uh, Indian mm. history, mm -hmm. uh, and they're just very good. We know what's problematic about Rudyard Kipling, and we can recognize that, see it in ourselves. And particularly if we're not people given to that kind of vice, uh, maybe we can proceed with some caution. But if we are given to that vice, uh, I have certain kind of spooky, ooky books that make me think, I wonder if I should try out my tarot cards and see what's <laughs> going on in the future. And, and so as a person who is kind of spiritually uh, attuned and wants to try out things I shouldn't, uh, that's, I don't read a lot of books like that, mm -hmm. like horror type uh, books, because I feel like I, that's problematic for me, not for anyone else. I don't care what you do. Uh, yeah. But that's hard for me. Well, and it that, made Wilkie Collins harder for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, yeah, for Correa Frederica did a good job of, I mean, it was it was great. She really didn't tell us mm -hmm. what to make of all of it. But she, you know, the, the title of the talk was Lessons from an Extraordinary Life. Yes. Um, oh, and triumph, she's a huge fan. Triumph <laughs> and train wreck, though. Yeah. And so I think the, the like... The longevity question, I guess, is the thing that I'm left with, with with her from her talk, which is you can have lived a life of great consequence, but there are still enough choices to be made when you are old to sully your legacy. Mm. Um, and mm. um, you can you can be an extraordinary uh, person who has you know incredible effect on the world around you, um, and then still, it's not too late to mess it up. 
Yeah, and uh, because of because of influences and uh, formations that change who everyone thought they were pretty sure you were. Well, and in that way, I feel and like we well. need to say uh, <laughs> a word of praise about Frederica herself, right? Yes, yeah. as someone who has lived a long career and published many, 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 many great works. Um, to have her at the conference, I've read. I not maybe not all of her books, but many of her books, and have been a longtime admirer. And her personal presence exceeded every hopeful expectation I had of being yeah. around her, um, which is always always a wonderful thing to experience. The best, part, the best part was when she interrupted you in the panel at the end on the last day, Kate. Do you remember that? <laughs> oh, oh, I she do. Inter- yeah, she interrupted. <laughs> she, I don't remember the context. She accidentally interrupted or something? No, I was and introducing then, myself. But then she mooed. Yeah, because of the, jo- the interrupting cow <laughs> joke, she, so it was like something, and then she was like, "Moo!" While someone was talking, I it think was it was incredible. simply because we didn't make her give up her microphone. <laughs> so against against <laughs> she had just noticed that she was still holding it. Against all temptation, she didn't become a celebrity uh-huh. and uh, want to be a celebrity. The quality of her writing and the quality of her work uh, helped keep her relevant. But she also kept doing the life of a normal person, mm-hmm. a normal priest's wife, and now a retiree, mother, grandmother now. And her life has had uh, hard trials, uh, I know. Uh, it's not my job to talk about those, but she talks about them. And she's done everything she's done fairly uh, faithfully, as far as I can tell, fully faithfully, to the teachings of the Orthodox Church, again, against a lot of temptation. Uh, when people like you and you're known for people liking you mm-hmm. and you have to take, for example, hard moral stands uh, and that makes people not like you who used to like you, uh, there are plenty of people like I am, I'm afraid, who uh, hesitate over those decisions a lot more than I think Frederica did. Mm. But she's a woman, as they used to say about a British prime minister, who's not for turning. Uh, mm. She's headed in the right direction. Uh, does that make her inimitable? Uh, <laughs> no, I think we are supposed to imitate her if we can. Hopefully she's not too inimitable. Yeah, my goal mm-hmm. is end well, end well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you hope that you do that because it is a reminder uh, that there's uh, if there's a folly in youth that's sort of forgivable because there's time in which to make up for it, there is a folly of older age, late middle age and old age, that is really troubling because what did you learn? Uh, it's the old, uh, what is the short story where they all drink of the fountain of youth? Apparently, uh, the older people who are the uh, pillars of their community, mm. I think it's a Hawthorne story, but mm. don't hold me to this. And they drink of the fountain of youth, and they all return to their childhood vices, uh-huh. like their young adult vices, because it turns out that they had never learned virtue. They had simply become too old and sick and tired Uh, to keep their old vices going. So Uh, the woman who is in the room, one of the women who is in the room, uh, becomes very vain and flirtatious. And the man who had been a notorious cad uh becomes a flirt and a cad again because he suddenly feels his youth returning. Mm. And so I think sometimes what happens when we don't end well is um, we have a stroke of luck or medicine helps us and we think, ah, I can be a lad again. Oh, to be a lad again. And boy, it wasn't good to be a lad in the first place and you really shouldn't do it in the second place because the story ends with revealing what the room really looks like. And it turns out that this is a kind of opiate or drug Mm, trip mm -hmm. or something. Who knows? It's a mysterious story. And it's really grotesque looking cronish people all behaving in these youthful behaviors in a room, but they can't see themselves that way. And so that becomes a good Dorian Gray-like reminder to me. Uh, I'm going to make a really corny transition because it's, it also reminds me of King Lear. Yes. It's not a corny Uh, transition. (laughs) We're going to talk about uh, people who in their old age have forgotten which way is up. Hmm. Um, and people who are behaving badly, especially. And what does that have to do with the conference? Well, uh, <laughs> one of the things that we were able to do was everybody who was with us, um, our, all of our keynote speakers. So this was um, Dr. Reynolds, Kate, 
uh, Frederica Matthews Green, Anika Prather, and Dr. Jennifer Frey. Well, Dr. I, can Anika I just Prather say, and Dr. Anika Jen Prather. Frey. Whoa, yes. what a revelation yeah. of awesome. Yeah, and then anyway. Dr. Jen Frey. Um, they all got together, and we did a panel discussion about King Lear right before taking everyone to a Houston Shakespeare Festival performance of King Lear. Um, at our outdoor theater here in downtown Houston. So uh, we were able to spend some time digging into the text um, with the folks who were at the conference. And yeah, just there are some parallels, I think, to what we were just discussing with Mm -hmm. uh, Dickens for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, I I was thinking, (laughs) this is a little bit of a side note, but I was thinking like, I think it's sometimes hard for adults in, um, you know, family life or career to think of a conference like this as for them um, because we're moving on with our lives. We're very busy. Um, I had had a baby, my fourth baby, one month before this conference started. (laughs) Is that a big Um, transition? (laughs) Well, you know, number four is actually the smallest transition. You're just like, you just got to come along, buddy. Like, (laughs) it's got to be a part of everything that's already going on. Um, So he came along to the conference. But one of the things that has stood out to me is when you were talking about um, getting to listen to Frederica talk about Dickens or getting to go to a Lear like performance and hear a panel discussion about it that can that we can easily dismiss that as not for us if we're in our sort of professional capacity um, but I think those are the sorts of things that help us grow old well you know like uh, like help us avoid the folly of old age of just letting our minds sort of wander and decay yeah. or become purely functionary yeah you got um, to look at king lear and if you don't reflect on that kind of right. bad decision making you miss the point of the play <laughs> and and as as a teacher and a school like a head of school we hear all the time from parents like wow my my student is studying these great things i wish i could too and like, here's this opportunity in these conferences for us to do that very thing. And I know I was very grateful being, you know, one month out from having a baby to have this moment of, yeah, getting to talk about Lear, getting to go to the to the play, getting to hear a wonderful concert by um, Paul Barnes the next night. Um, but that's where I'll make a meta observation mm-hmm. about the play that's kind of weird and it's a different sort of thing. So far, we've made uh, getting older just hard and don't blow it. <laughs> but I hope to get uh, to have the opportunity to get old, old, uh, partly mm-hmm. because of what I saw with the actors in King Lear. Hmm. Uh, King Lear is a part that uh, actors aspire to, but right. you can't do as a, as a young person. It's one of the problems with Hamlet. Right. Like Hamlet should be really young, but... Man, he's young, always thirty. Young people, right? <laughs> young people can't really play Hamlet. They don't have the depth, generally speaking, uh, to play the role. Uh, but you could really see it in the really fine. It was a college performance, uh, but they had, of course, brought in ringers, professional mm-hmm. actors, older people to play some of these critical older parts, as they did with Lear, who is stupendously good, mm-hmm. relatively speaking. But maybe expose the creakiness of college acting and the creakiness <laughs> of college emotional expressions. And if you're the middle-aged guy in the audience, you're saying, go old dudes. Yes, we're <laughs> rocking this performance. Mm. And so there's also that. There, there is the ability for life to bring you new opportunities. So if you're the kind of guy, you know, you're a great actor, uh, and you decide to be appropriate to yourself, take roles that are appropriate for you, find some spiritual and emotional depth, then you don't want to go back and play like Romeo. Uh, Romeo's a really shallow part compared to King Lear. And, and so there are opportunities there there uh, for a life well lived. Hmm. Yeah. I can play <laughs> Arthur and Camelot now. Uh, I can't play Lancelot. And mm. so since uh, the whole vision of Lancelot was destructive in my life in some important ways, uh, you can aspire to be Arthur. I don't think you can want, you can be Arthur, but you can aspire to play mm. Arthur mm-hmm. uh, as you get to be older. And so that's a, that's a cool thing. Yeah. Mm. One of the things I think is always interesting about reflecting on Lear, and I know one of the things we talked about in our panel discussion is his his preference for the oh how do you put it the it's not even the I guess it's just the fake like his preference for the flattering word or the self-appeasing word over anything that might be true as setting up the tragedy of the play but also sort of revealing the tragedy of whatever has gone on before um, in his mind that he is willing to 
give up so much just to hear what he wants to hear. Yeah, that's that's very true. As we think about that, I, this kind of storytelling, both stories that we've picked right now are from English culture. And that makes a lot of sense in a school like ours because all of our students, whatever their ethnic background, and most of our students are not from an English background, overwhelmingly so, I. Uh, but they're going to speak English. And so getting to English roots and someone like Shakespeare, who helped in some ways create the modern English language, I know that's overdone, but little truth to it. Or Charles Dickens, who really brought us into the modern world in terms of English storytelling and set a pattern, I think, for still movie writing and TV writing to this day. Dickens would have loved long-form television mm. like on HBO right now. You can just mm -hmm. imagine that serial... Uh, hack work that in Dickens' hand turned into splendid English being wonderful for an Amazon or an HBO or a Netflix in a long-form television series, uh, some great writing possible. But uh, those aren't the only stories to tell. And we had Anika Prather reminding us of that inside the conference that sometimes, and I'll, I will say this, as someone who loves classical ed and has been in the movement my entire life, led a little bit in one sense of the word lead, um, classical ed can be an excuse for racism or ethnocentrism. And there are plenty of modern classical schools that are just covers mm. for white supremacy. Now, I've never met somebody, I actually have never met somebody who wanted to say they were a white supremacist, as far as I know. Uh, but, for example, defending the lost cause narrative in the Civil mm -hmm. War, uh, or, well, we can't read any uh, Eastern literature or Ethiopian literature because there is no great literature in mm -hmm. those cultures. Uh, kind of crazy, and the minute somebody says something like that, you think, huh, how could you say that? So in many ways in St. Constantine, uh, language and orthodoxy, Christian orthodoxy, you have to pick some books, uh, cause us to pick the books we, we pick. But when we get into the 19th and 20th century and looking at the American experience, uh, we do try to diversify our reading list, not out of some kind of bow to, I don't even want to say any of the words, they're all so fraught with political peril, uh, but because... Uh, it grows me. I, I want to hear all kinds of stories mm -hmm. because they help me get a different perspective on uh, being 59 years old uh, as a man because many cultures tell those kinds of stories and they tell them in different ways and they have different resources. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I don't know what you heard in Anika's lecture, but that's she was saying everybody tell their stories. But that means I get to tell mine. Uh, what is it to be a black woman in America and to have been liberated, uh, this is her take, as a people group, partly through classics, but then to have classics whitewashed, mm -hmm. have all the you know African connections and classics uh, taken out, and to bluntly go into a classical Christian school movement that is sometimes dominated by a kind of latent white supremacy? Uh, like I said, I don't think it's anything uh, that most people are willing to state directly. Yeah. I think Anika, Anika is an important voice because um, she, she boldly asserts that the black authors that have absolutely transformed America, like have, have yeah. led to great societal change, were shaped by the classics themselves. Yes. And using that to assert then the classics are for every people, right? Like they are they are works that help all people come to liberation and freedom and self-actualization and being able to um, hold the, the positions of power yes, um, and it, speak it, the language of power. She points out that African Romans, uh, the mm -hmm. connection of the ancient cultures to the... Uh, eastern parts of the Mediterranean, which are not European parts, uh, there's a joke, it's not quite true, uh, that says the only white person in the New Testament is Pontius Pilate. Uh, <laughs> that's not true either, because I'm not sure of the status of Pontius Pilate. But uh, the eastern Mediterranean world, as a school uh, that in some ways comes out of Antioch, is mm -hmm. always reminded of that eastern Mediterranean part of the world is not Great Britain, mm -hmm. and it wasn't peopled mm -hmm. by Great Britain people groups. In one way, that doesn't matter at all. All truth is God's truth. There are deep archetypical truths that go from culture to culture. Uh, science is science. 
But in another way, perspective does matter and representation does matter as far as it goes. These can be used as brutal slogans, but in her hands, they became liberating. Why wouldn't I want to hear more stories? Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't I want to hear more perspectives? The great pity of the world is that we can't read all the books. Yeah. That we have to select a canon at all. Yeah. Um, Dr. Prather, when she, her talk was called Narrative of Hope. Mm. Um, about the, how classics have shaped the relationships between between blacks and whites, um, and she di- she sort of traced three particular authors: um, Terence the African, you, you you referenced him, so yes. he's the ancient Roman playwright um, who obviously he was a um, he was a slave who was taught Latin and mastered it, and then had so mastered it that his plays were studied as part of a classical education. Mm-hmm. Yes. So he was he was a part of the canon. Um, And And he may have been partly removed through white supremacy at one point in American history. And this isn't to attack American history. I love my country. I'm a patriot. But it does say that America has has had and does have a deep race problem. Uh, We legalized race-based slavery long after most parts of the Christian world knew better. And Mm. we continued it long past a lot of the world learning better. And then we set up instituted systems of segregation that lasted into my lifetime. Uh, So, I mean, this is a real thing. Uh, This is a thing you can talk to people about here in Houston. This is a thing that Houston struggled with in our own location. So to not talk about that candidly uh, is terrible. But the wonderful thing about observing this kind of dialectical conversation with Anika, even when she's on social media, is she wants everybody to tell her stories. She's not into censoring anyone or, as we just saw with Charles Dickens, looking at a figure like George Washington and simply reducing him to his grievous sin of Hmm. knowing he shouldn't own slaves, but going ahead and owning them uh, until he had passed away and his wife had passed away. Yeah, there were a few founding fathers connections to the formation of the United States that she pointed to that I thought were fascinating. One, I don't remember which founding father it was, but we have evidence from his letters where his own education of his own son, he says, you must read Terence the African. It's the finest example of uh, dramatic Latin, like, you know, plays in Latin. Yeah, wonderful. Um, and then also the other another author that she mentioned specifically, of course, was Phyllis Wheatley, mm-hmm. who had a correspondence nearing friendship with George Washington as a young girl. You know, she's living in the United States before it was formed. Um, a slave who was educated in, um, you know, in a white family's home and then showed such a prodigious skill in poetry that the family that she was living with insisted upon identifying her as the author and promoted her as the author um, sort of to challenge the status quo assumptions of mm-hmm. what, you know, black slaves were capable of. Um, in that time. Now, you know, she she died in poverty and alone. Um, her poetry, thankfully, has lived on, but she had a very difficult life. But there are these complicated realities like yes. that, you know, someone like George Washington, who himself owned slaves, was deeply moved by her poetic work and wrote back and forth with her. In, in many ways, it made his behavior less justifiable because he knew that right. uh, African-Americans were human Uh, He knew that they were capable of producing great works of art and yet uh, was willing to pursue escaped slaves and view their desire for freedom as somehow illegitimate. Hmm. So uh, I I think this is where, if you're going to tell the whole American story, another thing that matters is uh, George Washington made the freest republic at its time on the planet possible. But it also had this, quote unquote, peculiar evil institution of race-based slavery, Uh, On the other hand, where were you going to move anywhere else in the world where as many people, not women, could vote as the United States? The United States has been, for most of its history, on the forefront of a kind of liberation. And so I think in some ways you can compare it uh, to what the alternatives were. If the alternative is uh, czarist Russia uh, Mm -hmm. in 1789, you're much better off in the United States. Uh, But we can say all of that without not condemning the error, especially when they should have known better and did know better, and find heroes like Phyllis Wheatley, like some of the revolutionary characters who knew that slavery was wrong and were abolitionists, to hold up as uh, countervailing heroes. Look, you didn't have to get this wrong. Washington should have been better than he was. This is the back to representation matters, because a single hero, just like a single saint inside the church, 
uh, maybe except for the mother of God, can't represent the full spectrum of the Christian faith because most of our great saints, especially the modern ones, we know about vices or ideas they held. Uh, that's not why they're canonized. The mistakes they made, the wrong things they did. Maybe they died heroically and faithfully. Maybe they were great at giving to the poor and doing other good things. We need many saints to keep from being reduced, many heroes, uh, to just, let's say, one ethnicity. Uh, If all your heroes are white uh, and you live in a city like Houston that has no majority, uh, that's a weird thing. Why would you be that kind of person? Are all your friends incapable of heroism? But if that were your own ethnic background, like it's mine, I'm boringly English, uh, from Jamestown forward, then of course I'm going to have heroes that look like I do, you know, the King Arthur as a childhood figure. But I wouldn't want to deprive anyone else of that same opportunity. Mm-hmm. The final author, I, you know, we, we, you had to be there, frankly, uh, to, get, to really hear what, uh, what Dr. Prather shared with us. But she also talked about Frederick Douglass, um, obvious, an obvious example, Yay, who Frederick explicitly Douglass. says in his autobiography um, that his freedom is like intrinsically and impossibly removed a you know link to his education mm-hmm. um, and uh, she you know recounted many stories from his life but then pointed to the fact that it put him in a position to challenge Abraham Lincoln during the lead up to and during this you know the Civil War mm-hmm. um, so that he was able to create real change because he had he had positioned himself through a classical education, essentially, to be a man who is ready for the moment. So um, I have a picture of Frederick Douglass hanging up in my office and always have had. I love Frederick Douglass. He's connected to Rochester, where I went mm. to grad school. Yay, Frederick Douglass. Uh, I like this, though, in saying I don't like this part of Frederick Douglass. He kind of was cruel to American, but kind of. He was cruel to American Indians, First Nations, mm. uh, as was a common move amongst abolitionists, African Americans, uh, who said, you know, look, this is one group that should go to the wall. They're going to die out. Mm-hmm. They don't get it. Uh, and so you don't want to say of Frederick Douglass, well, that was okay. That's, that's not bad. Or justify it. Uh, and so Frederick Douglass, who I think is top 10 greatest human beings in the 19th century in America. Uh, On the other hand, uh, if you're an American Indian, you would look at his uh, track record and say, not so great. Uh, But then most people's track record was not so great, including Abraham Lincoln's in that time period. This seems to be the theme of what we've been talking about in our reflections on the conferences. It's not so great. The conference was great, but (laughs) we're not so great. People. People are not so great. Mixed bag. How are we? Yeah. And, you know, I want to. I somehow don't find this depressing. No, no. It's good to think about. And it gives me an interesting. We don't have very much time. So I want to get through these next two. No, it's great. We've got a couple more. But you were just talking about, you know, sort of the Native American historical connection and we actually had mm. a wonderful experience with having Paul Barnes at our yes. um, at our conference so he gave us a fantastic uh, lecture called Kalos and Creation exploring piano works based on Byzantine Jewish and Native American chant and then the final night of the conference um, just an incredible gift gave us a private concert of a full repertoire um, a full program I mean of, um, of music that uh, was reflected in the keynote that he gave but um, we are excited. He he performed some pieces that he um, that were commissioned that were written by um, the Native American composer and flutist Ron Warren, um, and we were just really honored. It was the first time he'd ever performed the piano parts mm-hmm. of those yes. of that uh, yeah, publicly, of anyway. and yeah. so he performed it in total. Um, he and Ron are actually starting right now to premiere mm-hmm. this work with the flute and piano together, and we are so fortunate because I think it's only going to be maybe the third time it's done this program. But Ron and Paul will be joining us this summer and performing the entire work okay, I, at I the would concert. Come, so, so this does sound like a commercial. I would come. <laughs> I know Hope Reynolds, uh, our first lady and my wife, would come to the conference just for this concert, uh, which will only be for people at the concert. At the conference, yes. Uh, yeah, it's, at the yeah, conference. it's going to be really special. Paul, so Paul was just a, a, just a gift. Yes. Like, just um, I, I, um, as a musician myself, 
it was like a master class in like seeing a true musician. You know, yeah. you're like, I am nothing yes. compared. He's clearly a virtuoso. I mean, yeah. he's got to be. I mean, you know. Well, he's Philip Glass's pianist. As yeah. Far as yeah. I can yeah. Tell. He's but also such an invitational man. Yes. And that's yeah. what was so clear. Clearly in him. an educator. Like Absolutely. passionate about helping people who don't understand much. He understand wanted, he his, wanted his to bring work. every person into the he's talking about obscure. Right. Like. Piano concertos based on Byzantine, Native American, and Jewish chant. Yes. This could be an entirely inaccessible subject in the hands of almost anyone. <laughs> like the three of us. Like the three of us. <laughs> we should but, say yes. nothing yeah, about it. But Paul made it like he 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 made it he made it something I want to know much more about now. Yes. Now I have this link. Um, but also included the entire room by allowing us to sing with him. And I was very intimidated at the idea of, until he gave us something we could actually do. Um, and yeah, just, and then to just watch his um, excellence on display at the but, concert. But this yeah. was another theme, I think, of the conference, and I think a deeper theme than almost anything we've talked about, and that is the nature of classical education is, technical term, dialectical. It engages in wonder. It looks mm. at the world and says, wow, God's world, God's people, they tell stories. This is wonderful and asks questions about it and learns from everything. And it's not afraid. It loves everything it possibly can love. And only, oh, I'm so sorry I have to reject this part of George Washington's life. I'm so sorry I have to look at Frederick Douglass and reject this part of his life. But mostly what you do is say, Washington could have been emperor and went home. He wasn't Napoleon. Oh, mm. thank God. Frederick Douglass uh, came uh, out of slavery and taught himself everything that I take for granted that I was given and resolutely fought against white supremacy for his entire life, even when he didn't always seem vic see victories. And that fills me with wonder. First Nations tell stories. They're wonderful part of the piece called The Turtle. Oh, so uh, amazing. Song of the Turtle. Yes. <laughs> and I, I have nothing to say about it other than it made me wonder and it was wonderful. And so, again, this is the mistake that people make in defining classical education by a canon. Like, mm. oh, classical education is a great books program. Well, we read a lot of books uh, and we try to read the very best and we try to make determinations because we can't read everything. But at no point would somebody who's dialectically trained say, oh, don't mix those three things together. That would be <laughs> terrible. Because mm. in the hand of a composer and in a master pianist and teacher, uh, wow, mm -hmm. why wouldn't I not? I just wanted to go out and do everything. I hope read every book that Anika mentioned in her talk, mm -hmm. Professor Prather. I'm sorry, she's just such a wonderful <laughs> person. I want to use her first name. Uh, she bought all of them and has read all of them, uh, the story of jazz and things like that, because uh, what we were invited to was an even bigger story yeah. than the one we've experienced. Mm -hmm. And who doesn't want to do that? I mean, you have to have a problem not to want to do that. Yeah. Nobody was saying, stop reading Charles Dickens, but they were saying there's problematic parts of it and read this as well, even if there are problematic parts of that from mm -hmm. a Christian point of view. Yeah. It's going to be hard not to have Paul redo performing Philip Glass's Enunciation um, as part of the program for this year. But that was really special as well. So, special. yeah, Philip Glass is probably the greatest living American composer. Yes. Um, and uh, Paul Barnes commissioned from Philip Glass um, a um, it's his first piano religious piece. It's his first. I think yeah. it was his first piano concerto. Is that right? Yeah, he's done um, a lot of work, too, with Indian music, subcontinent yeah, uh, yeah. Indian music. Um, but it was based on an icon of the Annunciation that Paul had given to Philip Glass. Um, Paul is a Greek Orthodox chanter, enormously talented. And his huh. his uh, both the concert and his lecture were interactive, where the audience provided the eson, mm -hmm. And so we're, there we all are intoning. And then he would do these incredible chants. So he was he was doing the chants in their um, in the in, you know, in the native tongue as for each category. And then he would perform the pieces that had been commissioned based on those particular pieces of chant music and it was just incredible yeah. so um it was very exciting i think the last thing before we before we sign off i just want to give us a chance to talk about so De dr jennifer frey was also with us which is incredible <laughs> dr jennifer frey Too is much well yeah is at the university of um south carolina 
and uh, runs a very popular and famous podcast called Sacred and Profane Loves. Um, but this she, podcast will have one million of the listeners. Yes, exactly. Any moment of that podcast. <laughs> um, and uh, is just a very well-known and, and well-regarded philosopher. And uh, she gave us a, a talk called Education and Contemplation. Um, does anybody have anything they want to say about that? Yeah. We've just, yeah. Well, it, it's, I think it was a touchstone of the theme of the conference for me. Um, like I said, coming um, in the midst of maternity leave with a new baby, but also knowing we were headed right into the school year, which for any educator means the start of a mad dash <laughs> through till Christmas. Um, and Dr. Frey was so good at reminding us that true learning comes from contemplation and true contemplation can only come with leisure. And so giving sort of, and again, I, I think this is a challenge to adults in yes. particular. Um, kids are the people who have leisure. Adults tend to take leisure out of their lives mm. um, in order to keep up with their responsibilities. And um, I think it sort of was a moment of giving permission or even saying this, this is necessary um, if you want to live with wisdom, if you if you want to have a mind that continues to cultivate good answers to your everyday problems, or um, that that does end well when you're old, you you have to allow for the time and space for contemplation. Yeah, it's beautiful. It it really was. We're back to what is the nature of classical education? And it isn't having the right canon or saving us from whatever the problem is of the week, because that wouldn't be classical, right? Whatever, people are always fleeing other schools uh, to avoid some problem. Mm. Don't pick a classical school, because we're, we're dealing with enduring goodness, truth, and beauty, which means, I guess, if we're doing it correctly, we won't have the problem of the age, uh, at least as much. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, Jennifer was pointing us back to the timeless things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and she referenced St. Thomas Aquinas, um, Joseph Pieper. I'm trying to remember what other authors that she she spoke about. But um, especially coming from somebody who is so successful in yes. the traditional yeah, university academic yeah, environment. Yeah, yeah. So having Certainly having not my career. Yeah. <laughs> having her with us and sort of challenging um, the uh, the machine. Yeah. Um, from from a place of success within it, not someone who couldn't hack it and then is like, well, that's bad anyway. Someone who believes it's valuable has dedicated you know her career to doing those things and then is able to say, however, true deep education needs to have access to a place of contemplation, which means that the way that most of us are going about this is not going to result in what any of us should consider to be a true education. Yes. Very challenging. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we are so out of time. Um, I thank you all. I, I feel like we ripped off the people later in the conference <laughs> because we were so obsessed with everyone in the conference. <laughs> yes. and, but I'm going to do a commercial. I don't care if we go over time. And the commercial is this. You have to be at a conference yeah. like this because you could sit down with Kate Gilbert or with Megan Muller and have a long conversation about what they were thinking in the moment about these these folk. Uh, Hope and I would go sit in the hotel room and we had some really engaging people that were there that mm -hmm. we got to talk to uh, who were educators from all over the country. All over. Mm -hmm. Yep, yeah. all over the country. Yeah. So how many, how many seats do we have? Because the other thing we want to do with this conference, again, this is not a put down. I have talked to, I've spoken at conferences with 10,000 people and, and those are fantastic uh, for a certain sort of thing. But we're not that sort of thing. Not that we could ever have 10,000 people show up at a conference, but we wouldn't want to do it if we could, he says lamely. Uh, <laughs> but our goal is uh, how many seats? I mean, I think I think that's uh, like 120 this year. Yeah, we so, put ourselves intentionally yeah. in a hotel, which is fabulous. It's a great place. You can walk. I stayed an extra night and went to an Astros game. Went to the game. Astros game, yeah. Just walk, <laughs> and it literally was one block from mm -hmm. Minute Maid Park. So it was fantastic uh, evening to capstone the this conference. This is a commercial for, for the Hampton Inn downtown. Yes, Hampton Inn downtown, where you can walk to a Minute Maid game and watch all the but, weird people who are going to conventions at the Brown Center. But it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of making a decision if you pick that hotel in the Brown 
Town Center because it's first rate, but you're not going to put more than 150 people yep. in it for yep. sure. We want to keep it. We want to keep it small. We want it to be high, high value. So getting FaceTime with all of these keynotes who we bring in, um, plenty of time for discussion. We have oodles and oodles of breakout sessions where there's even more content um, and just giving people time to absorb it. And then leaving space for the fine arts because we need rest and contemplation. Mm -hmm. I, I Let's try one sentence from the conference, just one sentence, uh, a thing that you remember from the conference that was punchy. If you had to tweet the conference, what would you say? Uh -oh. I try not to think in, in tweets. Yes, yeah, so that's because <laughs> you're virtuous and I'm not. But I'll, I'll try this. I actually had to denounce the Confederacy during the conference. Not because uh, anyone there was advocating, I know, advocating right. <laughs> for it, but it turned out, uh, and I had about a month before, I had run into somebody, and I wasn't morally posturing because it's such low-hanging fruit. I had had to denounce Nazism <laughs> and forms of fascism because we had uh, folks that ran into fascists, actual fascists. They weren't ashamed of it. They had fascist mm. leanings, and the Nazis, they're not that bad, right? And you got to quote Indiana Jones, the Nazis, I hate these guys. Uh, this does not make you very moral. If you can't say that, you're in trouble. But it was the kind of conference where people were willing to say things. They were willing to make moral judgments. And uh, it's that kind of place where suddenly it became necessary to say, oh, classical schools that think the Confederacy was just great, uh, not on our watch. That's mm -hmm. not who we mm -hmm. are. And that's not who we want the conference to be part of. Yeah. I think probably my, my soundbite is um, the reticence of many of the keynotes to participate in the King Lear panel until the second someone made a comment about King Lear. And then everybody was like, and that <laughs> makes me think of something yeah. else. And then it was just a full on, like mm -hmm. full steam ahead, uh, dialectic discussion of the text. Um, I just I love being in a place where lots and lots of people who think with humility, oh, I'm not the one who you want to get up on stage and talk about King Lear. I'm just, you know, whatever yeah. you are. And then when it comes down to it, though, the ideas are so engaging and get you so worked up that you have to take the moment to be like, but what Cordelia, like, what are you doing? Like, you know, all, like you start to, it, it, it gets, it just gets you so fired up. And mm. so being a part of a group of people who were getting so fired up about a, a Shakespeare play that many people would probably say is like super boring. It doesn't matter anymore. Um, that was, that like was, people, that was very, I, very I cool. I think something that I took away from it was that any one of our keynotes, what they talked about could have been a conference in and of itself yes yes like yes. the um, the amount of goodness thrown our way in just a few days um was just it can be a, enlivening for much longer because you can keep thinking about all of the things that you got to start thinking about there oh, and we got to think uh john muller shout out i guess we had these ponces we would just stop and mm -hmm. we would hear from mm -hmm. some super awesome author and stop and reflect on those things and that that was just pretty pretty great yep. i enjoyed it a, a great deal uh, and so I think it's a conference that's also not overpacked. I don't think that uh, there are times to take breaks. You don't have to go to every single thing. Uh, but if you like being around people who just want to talk about anything and mm -hmm. have an argument about anything, I met a person over the weekend and he said, no, you don't want to know what my PhD is about. No one would care. Uh, and actually, we did care as a group because we're from St. Constantine. We like everybody's cool idea. But what was really sad is there are at least three people who work here who would have freaked out and had the world's best conversation. One of them, my brother. So I felt like, oh, you have the wrong Reynolds here. Uh, you should get my brother to come because he would love it. But I enjoyed. I, who doesn't like hearing again? about somebody very obscure uh, Anglican thinker relative to my world, very obscure. And uh, who doesn't want to learn that story? Who doesn't want to hear the deep insights that person had? Just because it's, quote, unquote, not relevant to me or to work I do in Plato, so what? Mm -hmm. Something new, something awesome, and a person who's passionate about it. That's education. Yeah. So if you want to, if you already are excited or you want to feel more excited, if you join us next summer, I think you'll probably catch a little bit of that. It's catching for sure. Well, thank you all very much. Mm -hmm. This has been Constantinople, a podcast of the St. Constantine School. To learn more about St. Constantine Schools, St. Constantine College, or our National Vision Conference, July 27th through 29th, 2023, please visit stconstantine.org. <laughs>